Hello, everybody, and welcome to What the Health, a podcast dedicated to helping you navigate your way to better health. I'm Lena Lahire, certified personal trainer, nutrition coach, best-selling author, and psychology student at the University of Calgary. I'll be discussing topics that range from nutrition, fitness, lifestyle, and everything in between so you can feel confident in how to move towards better health physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's get into our topic for the day. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode. Today, I'm joined by special guest, Dr. Barry Cooper. Barry is a fourth-generation Albertan who was educated at Shawnigan Lake School, the University of British Columbia, and Duke University. He has taught at several Laurentian Canadian universities before coming to the University of Calgary in 1981. For the past 35 years, he has studied Western political philosophy, both classical and contemporary. He has published around 200 articles and over 35 books, most recently Paleolithic Politics, The Human Community in Early Art. Earlier this year, he and Marco Navarro Genet published COVID-19, The Politics of a Pandemic, Moral Panic. He has received numerous grants from private and public granting agencies in Canada, the United States, France, and Germany, including a Conrad Adenauer Award and a Killam Research Fellowship, and has spent considerable amounts of time in France and Germany teaching and doing research. For many years, he published a regular column in several Canadian newspapers and has been a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada since 1993. I'm so honored to have him on the podcast. Welcome to the show, Barry. Good to be here. <laughs> How are you doing? How's, how's your COVID life? Uh, it actually hasn't been disrupted that much. I've, I've been pretty much going to my office because uh, I don't have an office at home. Uh, and I've been, you know, I've been getting a fair bit of stuff done. Good, good. So you talk quite a bit about politics being a political science professor, but you have some different views that most people have. I find that people are very quick to blame either the left or the right, but is it more the left or the right wing policies that need to be argued against or is it more the ideological positions that either one may hold well it's a very good uh, very good question um the kind of political science that i do political philosophy uh looks at among other things the origins of uh such kind of conventional divisions be as between left and right uh and for uh, a long long period in human history uh, people simply did not think in terms of left and right. It, it's uh, one of many, many conventions that came out of the uh, French Revolution. Mm. And uh, so the way I look at, uh, at, at political reality, basically, uh, is not in terms of left and right, but in terms of whether or not uh, the account that whoever is giving the account, um, whether it corresponds uh, to reality. Uh, and both left and right uh, distort for their own, you know, perfectly intelligible, understandable reasons. Uh, and which I, uh, in that uh, course that, that, uh, that you took, we, I talked about in terms of ideology. Well, there's a, a, a way of looking at politics that's non-ideological. Mm. And 
ideologists don't believe that. Well, that's their problem. You know, uh, it's not my problem. Uh, I study ideologies. Uh, ideologies study ideologies too. Ideologists study ideologies too, but they're not political scientists. Uh, and that sometimes will include some of my uh, colleagues in the in the Department of Political Science. They they don't have um, I would say a comprehensive understanding of what the enterprise of political science is, and it goes way back to the Greeks. Aristotle was the the first political scientist. He's the first individual that used the term. Uh, so that's where uh, we have to begin because when these new words are introduced into the common vocabulary, like political science or ideology or any number of other terms, um, that's significant. So we have to look at what were the conditions under which uh, somebody, Aristotle or you know some guy in the French Revolution, introduced this new term. Uh, that's just, actually it's just being empirical. It's just looking at uh, how these, this terminology develops. And that's, that's what I do. Mm -hmm. So like, how did we, how did we get here? Can you explain to the, our listeners what an ideology even is? Yeah, as I, as I, the, the simplest way of looking at it without going into, uh, you know, like really getting into the weeds, uh, it's, it's basically an agreed upon convention by a number of individuals who then want to impose it on everybody else. And they can be quote left or right, or, you know, up or down or whatever. That's, that's really a secondary uh, attribute. But it's the, it's the element of coercion that most common sense individuals uh, notice right away, whether they are left or right. Uh, and that's a kind of common denominator of, of every ideology uh, in, the, uh, in the modern universe, basically. Mm -hmm. And where did ideologies come from? Like, what are some popular examples um, from history all the way to currently? Well, the, the, the term, um, you know, as, as you will remember, <laughs> uh, was invented by a, a guy named Destu de Tracy, who was uh, uh, thrown in the Bastille and was about to be executed. Um, he escaped um, basically by the skin of his teeth uh, two days before he was scheduled to be executed. Uh, Robespierre was removed from office, so he was not sliced in two. Um, and he was, uh, as you might imagine, traumatized <laughs> by coming that close to uh, being, being killed. Uh, and he subsequently then developed what he called a science of ideas that was then uh, ridiculed, particularly by Napoleon, who, as you may remember, uh, um, kind of replaced the uh, the terror element of the of the French Revolution and about the same time uh, the terms liberal and conservative were used in a political context prior to that liberal meant generous uh, and I mean uh, conservative these were also uh, French words conservateur I, I'm like it meant somebody who would retain things mm. um, but it was then used in a political context. Um, and that became the sort of first uh, what, constellation of ideological terms. And it then was applied uh, not simply to uh, events of the French Revolution, but in the later 19th century uh, to general politics, including politics in the UK. Uh, 
uh, and in and in uh, in Germany. Um, then additional terms were added, like socialism. Almost all the isms are uh, 19th century neologisms, new words that were invented by people um, who gave them a special significance. Uh, I mean, that's the sort of the, the aftermath of the French Revolution and the kind of general social and political upheaval led to these, this new terminology that um, the people who used it thought that it would perfectly well express what it is that they wanted to do. So that's where it came from. Right. And it's shown up in lots of different ideological positions like Marxism. Oh. Um, can you explain a little bit what Marxism, because like there's a lot of people that don't know about these terms and yet they're kind of entwined within a lot of our politics today. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, I, Marx it was particularly interesting because uh, he never saw himself as an ideologist. He saw himself as a scientist. Okay. And then the distinction between ideology is what all of these other people do. What I do is science. Uh, I mean, you know, we say that too in political science, mm -hmm. um, but we have a somewhat longer pedigree than, than say Marxists who talk about what for them was the science of history, a scientific understanding of how history developed. Um, I mean, remember the opening, well, we didn't read it in the class, but the opening sentence in the Communist Manifesto is the, the history of humanity is the history of class struggle. Well, you know, if you believe that, <laughs> okay, fine, <laughs> but it isn't. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of other things that go on in history other than class struggle. I mean, we didn't have classes uh, until really until the, the early modern period. Uh, that the, you had divisions in society, of course, but they weren't what the Marxists mean by uh, class. Um, so then anyway, the, the Marxists uh, had this rather elaborate understanding of, uh, of ideology, particularly as it applied to what they called the bourgeoisie. And there were uh, in their uh, quote, scientific understanding of history, uh, history ended up with two classes, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. The final revolution by the proletariat against the bourgeoisie would abolish all classes. It would abolish the bourgeoisie because they'd all be executed, but it would also abolish the proletariat because they existed, as Marx said, only by opposition to the bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. So if there were no more bourgeois, no more, no more proles. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, that uh, was in Marx's, by Marx's lights, was uh, science, historical science. Uh, everybody who um, questioned that, uh, he basically said were ideologists, most of whom were variants of, uh, of being bourgeois uh, ideologists who wanted to, um, in, in his language, sort of obfuscate the inevitable conflict between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And they did it through religion, through you know any number of other, uh, through liberalism, through conservatism, all these other um, isms uh, were dismissed and have been dismissed by Marxists ever since as being uh, what Marx called a, an expression of uh, false consciousness. Right. True consciousness, everybody who was, was truly conscious of their place in history 
had to be a Marxist. It's convenient. <laughs> yeah, very convenient. Uh, and, and that language and the, the kind of uh, perverse logic uh, was adopted by all kinds of other uh, ideological um, uh, adherents. Uh, and in the class that you took, uh, the one that, that, or the two that we looked at in some detail were uh, feminists and, um, and environmentalists. They adopted the same kind of logic as Marx, but they didn't use uh, class as the, uh, as the kind of um, engine of history. With, I mean, the environmentalists are, are I think, are, are more um, uh, an, a, an ideological example than feminist because there, there's a, still a, a connection with a lot of feminism to kind of common sense realities mm -hmm. about the, the position of women in modern industrial society. Mm -hmm. uh, with the environmentalists, they're living in, uh, in, a, in a fantasy world uh, that uh, they have invented. Mm -hmm. I mean, like right from the beginning. Um, and in, in political science, we have a, a, a term that we use to discuss this, which uh, you may remember is a second reality, which is a, a, a reality. It's a reality in the sense that, that people live within it. They think it's true. Uh, and they can act on it. And action is the most important aspect of politics. So you can, you can believe in some you know, half-baked idea like the, the, the Jews are in control of the world and you can act on that uh, by, for example, the Nazi version of, of exterminating Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it doesn't matter if it's completely uh, fantasy. Environmentalists, I think, are the, are the perfect example uh, of this in the modern world that, that almost everybody has some kind of contact with. Uh, the, the book that you referenced that, uh, that Marco and I did applies the same kind of analytical perspective to uh, government responses to the uh, COVID uh, um, what, pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, it, it, it's a virus, you know, people get sick, um, but that doesn't, uh, explain why the government of Canada, the government of the United States, the government of Alberta, the government of Calgary uh, behave in this this uh, completely idiotic way. It's because they they basically freaked out. Mm -hmm. Now, why did they do that? Well, you know that's a that's a you'll have to read the book, right? <laughs> read the book; it'll explain it all. Uh, but but basically, the the bottom line is that in modern uh, dem democracies. And this we took from, partly from Hobbes, but also from Tocqueville, the uh, 19th century French um, analyst of, um, of, um, of, of American democracy. There is a kind of free floating anxiety among democratic regimes. And uh, they're, they're easily scared, uh, particularly when the government says be really, really scared. Mm -hmm. uh, and when governments uh, have done that, say with respect to uh, quote, saving the planet and, uh, and uh, you know, anthropogenic global warming, um, you can see that. And the evidence for it, uh, let's say is, um, doesn't account for the panic of governments in doing it. Uh, there is some evidence, but there's a lot of contrary evidence too, mm -hmm. which they ignore. Uh, and, and similarly with this, with the uh, COVID uh, events, um, 
one of the things I noticed uh, actually yesterday uh, in the paper, uh, there have been zero examples of influenza in I Alberta. Saw that. Now, that's amazing. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> you know, so you know, at least if you retain any common sense, that a lot of these uh, COVID uh, quote cases are in fact flu cases. And a huge number of people who are, um, I mean, it's certainly in, in central Canada, uh, a lot of people died from who were in, in old folks homes. Uh, they didn't die from COVID, they died with it. Yeah. You know, you can think of old age as another one of these uh, comorbidities. Old yeah. people die. Yeah. Whoa, who knew? Yeah. You know, so there's, there's a whole bunch of, um, I would say, misinformation that is exploited by uh, people who are strategically placed in our society, particularly uh, healthcare, uh, quote, professionals and experts, um, uh, who, uh, as I've said on a number of interviews that I've done on this, they probably enjoy, uh, you know, being um, in the limelight. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you think they don't, if you think Teresa Tam does not like, you know, being center stage, you have a very naive understanding of of human nature. Yeah. So there's, you know, that's, that's an example of contemporary example uh, of how um, as political scientists, we can look at these uh, events and make sense of them. That is contrary to the conventional uh, received narrative that is pushed by, uh, by newspapers, by mainstream media, by governments and by experts. I mean, the people that really tick me off are the experts, you know, because they, they quote unquote experts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because most of the time they haven't a clue about what they say. And I, I mean that with every one of these uh, uh, medical officers of health in BC, in Alberta and in Ottawa. Those are the, you know, the big three. We call them the three graces <laughs> and, and some of the stuff that they have said is simply, you know, contrary to the facts. Yeah. You know, so then when the politicians say, yeah, we have to follow the science. What science? Yeah. They, they follow the, the science that they follow mm -hmm. is what they uh, prescribe as being, you know, real science and everything else is the equivalent of false consciousness and all the rest of it. Yeah. You know, that's one thing you know, it's hard to disseminate between what's, what's fact and what's not, because to the general public, when they hear someone in authority saying that this is the science, they don't really have the wherewithal to go in and fact check. They don't know where to start. You know, um, I'm not degrading anyone, but like a lot of people don't know how to read academic research. They just don't know so they just follow whatever the experts say but one thing that whether it's uh marxism or the nazis or <laughs> modern day environmentalists there's always this science component that they stand behind which makes it very difficult for the general public to battle against because once you throw the word science out like you can't say anything now because then you're going against science is that strategic of them to use that word? Absolutely it is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
science, the modern understanding of science uh, is a post-enlightenment. And I would say a very restricted understanding of what science meant uh, in uh, previous uh, centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, what you, it's, in fact, there's been a lot of studies of what they call scientism, which is a, an ideological you know, version of, of science that reduces it to a very particular kind of method. Uh, and mo- mostly having to do with, with uh, quantitative uh, quantifying things. Um, science in, in Aristotle uh, means giving a true account of reality. That's mm-hmm. what political science is. And, and, and as he used the term, um, many of my colleagues uh, think that political science is giving a quantitative account of you know, voting rates or something. Uh, well, it, it, that's not, they just, you know, they don't know any better. They've never read Aristotle for all I can tell. Uh, and it, it, you know, in a way it doesn't, it doesn't much matter. But the, the Newtonian understanding of science as, as quantitative and as following the quote scientific method uh, is the, the modern, uh, is a modern set of commitments that also doesn't correspond to reality. Uh, there is no such thing as a scientific method. Uh, if you're a biologist, you have absolutely no use for, say, comparative philology to look at, uh, at the Hebrew Bible, you know, the levels of uh, texts in the Bible. Well, that's, that is scientific in the, in the old sense, uh, that you can distinguish various uh, levels and, and texts and meanings and so on. Um, and it's more or less, I mean, the Germans have a word, their word for science, Wissenschaft, is capture still the old sense of uh, giving a, a truthful account of reality. Uh, it, it's in French and in, and in English, uh, it has been reduced to this um, caricature of what uh, science is. So when Modern politicians and experts talk about science. Uh, they're using it in a very diminished way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it shows. Uh, and it's partly because they, uh, they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the medical officers of health uh, across this country and, and elsewhere in the world are, have no understanding of the, of the consequences uh, of, of what they're doing. I mean, just the economic consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they did, I mean, it's been pointed out to them, but it hasn't been pointed out to them in a medical context. It's been pointed out to them, you guys are screwing up with the economy. Mm-hmm. We are? Well, we're not concerned with the economy. We're just concerned with public health. Yeah. Well, public health does not exist in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. madame, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, it is your policy has these consequences. And if you don't understand that, then somebody else has to point it out for you. Uh, but our politicians are not doing that. Right. Because they have bought into this uh, myth of science as a method. Right. Can you talk a little bit about moral panic? What is it and how does it show sure. up? How is it showing up? Uh, the term is a, a nice modern contemporary term. Uh, it, it grew out of uh, some sociological work or criminology work uh, in the UK in the 60s when uh, there were these uh, groups of young men, uh, some of whom uh, were fans of Elvis Presley and others were fans of the Beatles. And the Presley 
uh, guys like to ride around on motorcycles and the Beatle guys used to go on uh, scooters uh, and they liked to fight each other. And they had, uh, they would congregate at uh, Brighton, which is a, a kind of um, a resort on the uh, south coast of England. And they had a number of fights, you know, serious. I mean, there was, you know, people got hurt, but, you know, I don't think anybody ever got killed. And the, the police, um, the BBC, uh, academics, uh, Anglican vicars, uh, all of the respectable uh, people thought that this was the end of the, uh, of the world as we knew it. And they, they thought they hated rock and roll, whether it was Elvis or the Beatles, it's all uh, diabolical. Uh, and they basically freaked out. Well, uh, a sociologist at uh, LS, uh, LSE, uh, London School of Economics, um, wanted to study the response by public authorities to uh, what were basically riots. Uh, and that's where he uh, came up with this um, term, um, a moral panic. And it's not a moral in the sense of ethics, it's moral in the sense of mores. People uh, thought that, that uh, British, the British way of life was under attack, uh, which it wasn't, you know, it wasn't. It, young men liked to fight. Uh, that's why they join armies among other things. Um, and he thought this was kind of odd. Well, it, you could um, move it into the past with, with previous examples, or you can move it into the uh, future, or it was applied in the, in the future as well. I mean, in, in, in Canada, um, the confiscation of Japanese property during World War II uh, on the West Coast and in the United States was example of a moral panic. Um, Canada did it because the Americans did. For some reason, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, uh, was, in a, was in a state. The, the, his military advisors at the Pentagon said there's, there's no threat from Japanese Americans. He did it anyway. And Canada then, Mackenzie King, you know, followed suit. Um, for the same reasons, because they said, wow, what are we gonna do? Uh, and the, I mean, as, as we know from the, uh, from 213, the, the, the class you took, um, the example of, uh, of environmentalism fulfills all of the criteria of a moral panic. And so does COVID. The response of governments uh, around the world has been one of panic. Mm -hmm. uh, and among other things in the, in the book, we, we talk about the, the actual, the origin, the sort of circumstantial evidence surrounding the origin of this uh, pathogen in, in Wuhan. Uh, and it, you know, these things come from somewhere. Uh, they don't kind of come from outer space. Um, and you can understand uh, why uh, the Chinese, for example, would deny they had anything to do with it. Uh, and if, you know, if, if you're naive enough to believe what the Chinese say, then, you know, fine, you'll, you won't know where it came from. You know, it just did come from outer space, but it didn't. You know, it, it came from the, the evidence that it came from a lab in the city of Wuhan. There, there are two of them there, and it's not clear which one it came from, but uh, it's almost overwhelming. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, 
why did the Chinese do that? Well, it, what kind of a lab was it? Uh, you know, you can, you can, these are not uh, sort of mysterious things that we don't know anything about because, because we do. And you can be sure that intelligence agencies know a lot more uh, than, than we talked about, um, which was all, you know, uh, public, uh, public information. Now, you did make an interesting point that it's very hard to, for ordinary people to, um, to read these scientific reports. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you can read the reports. I mean, it, it's a lot of them are not very well written. So, you, you know, you have to learn how to, how to uh, interpret bad writing, <clears throat> but you can understand them. It may be difficult to operate in a lab. Uh, you know, I, I have, you know, I haven't been in a lab since I was you know, an undergraduate, um, but it's not hard to read the reports of what people have done in labs. It's not, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the discourse that comes out of these scientific papers is about things that have nothing to do with the biology or the virology. It has to do with say statistics mm -hmm. and how do you measure, uh, you know, what is the significance of the cases in Alberta going up? And there are different, you know, the, the relationship between uh, illness and cases mm -hmm. and the relationship between illness and death. I mean, those are statistical measures that are not really biological. So if you, you know, if you know something about statistics, it's not that hard to figure out what these guys are trying to say. Right. There's lies, damn lies in statistics, right? There certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, with, um, with moral panic, it's definitely something that we see with climate change. AGW is what we're going to call it, anthropogenic uh, catastrophic global warming. And even though we're hearing this message, and we've been hearing this message for a long time. I mean, I remember growing up, I'm, I'm 32 this year. I remember growing up in, you know, 15, 16, and, and the world was going to end in seven years. It always seems to be seven years. Um, but, you know, there's still this, this big moral panic around it. And all of this science saying, just follow the science, follow the science. And yet the science is not settled. Um, science is never settled actually in any area. You can, it's always up for debate, but people aren't willing to debate it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people believe that the science is settled on something as complex as, as climate change? <laughs> because people like certainty. Uh, and, uh, most people have difficulty dealing with uncertainty, mm. uh, but life, this is going to be shocking, life is filled with uncertainties. Uh, so, you, you know, either you can make up imaginary certainties to give yourself comfort, uh, or you can, you know, face up to reality and say, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, the, the version that I grew up with was uh, nuclear war. Uh, and I remember thinking at the time I was in in, um, uh, in elementary school and then in, in junior high school. And I remember thinking that this didn't make much sense. And a, a friend of mine and I, who uh, also <laughs> ended up as a professor, uh, talked about this. And we, we, we had taken a little Roman history and we knew something about the the. Uh, war between the Romans and the Carthaginians. And we, you know, made analogies as, you know, people who are 
15 years old do. And, and, uh, and we wondered why anybody on either side would seek the complete destruction of everything through nuclear weapons. We said, that doesn't make any sense. And so then we you know, sort of shrugged our shoulders, but we had to do things like, uh, I mean, this, it's, this is apocryphal for most people because they don't believe it, but it's, it was, we had to practice getting under our desks in school in order to, for what? Mm-hmm. I mean, we thought this was ridiculous because we knew some of the physics involved uh, and uh, radiation poisoning uh, would not, you wouldn't be protected by hiding under your desk. No. So, I mean, even there, um, there was a kind of um, inchoate understanding that there was a lot of BS out there and that we had to be alert to that. And I mean, that's, a, that's another technical political science term that also can apply to ideology, <laughs> except it's gonna, they, they want, the ideologists want to impose it on you. Yeah, so why, why climate change? Like why pick something like that to kind of, you know, really, and I, I'm going to, you know, put a strong word out there to coerce people with. And I know, like, you'll have words thrown out if you say anything about climate change, be called a denier and, right, like, it's crazy, yeah. absolutely crazy. But like, why pick something like climate change? The, the main reason is because you can't disprove it. Because it's something that's going to happen in the future. And you said seven years, it's always seven years, but it's the next seven years. And, you know, seven years from now, it'll be another seven years. Um, and, and when you have these uh, scientifically predicted apocalypses that are infinitely postponed into the future, you can never disprove them. Uh, one of the things that uh, you may remember I talked about in the class was a, a kind of prelude to this uh, was acid rain. Uh- the problem with acid rain is that it went away. So then people had to look for other explanations as to why anyone was ever concerned with acid rain in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there are, you know, there are perfectly intelligible scientific reasons why acid rain went away because mm-hmm. trees grew. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the, uh, the problem with acid rain had to do with the leveling of uh, forests particularly in, in uh, the uh, Midwest and, uh, and Eastern and Central Canada, um, and then in their equivalent places in Europe, in Norway, uh, that uh, took time, took about a hundred and some odd years to restore the balance that was disrupted through cutting down all of these forests. Mm. And it was not, you know, it was not um, a result of uh, the big smokestack at uh, Sudbury or the Norwegians said it's because the, the Brits are burning coal. They had nothing to do with that. Mm-hmm. Those, were, those were political excuses uh, made by uh, people who wanted to capitalize uh, on their, basically their anti-industrial uh, perspectives or you know, whatever, they had some kind of political uh, agenda that they wanted to, to promote. Mm-hmm. So then they just, you know, nobody talks about it anymore. Yeah. Where'd yeah. it go? Yeah. Yeah, and you do see that, you know, uh, it kind of circles back to our conversation about Marxism, you know, all of these different themes underlying these ideologies, something like climate change and environmentalism, you know, there's this big attack on a quote unquote big oil 
because they're the, they're the bourgeoisie and the proletariat is is everyone else and it's kind of like just history replaying itself and yet it's but it's animal farm right because <laughs> someone's got to take power yes yes no that's yeah that's good i mean it, mentioning orwell is um uh he was he was really quite prophetic in in a lot of his um a lot of his work and he was uh, when he wrote that um writing it from what we now would call the left mm -hmm. uh, and what he was writing against in this case were the uh, were the marxists and the communists uh particularly in the soviet union mm -hmm. so i mean the reason why the, the uh i talked a bit about the soviet union in that class is because it was a sort of serious ideological regime uh, equivalent in that respect to the National Socialists. Yeah. Uh, and um, there are elements of that in Western democracies as well, but they're just, they're, they're, they're kind of floating around. They're not, they're not kind of coherent in the sense of a consistent um, ideology that will be imposed through state power. Right. Although we've seen elements of the use of state power uh, in the sense of the Calgary Police Service uh, with the COVID. Yeah. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one response that, um, you know, that a term that's familiar to you, that's familiar to a lot of people who it's not even speaking out against, but it's bringing up a different narrative. There's always two perspectives that, you know, the science isn't settled. There's, there's science in all areas, right? Like you can prove or disprove anything if you really want. Um, is this notion of cancel culture. <laughs> and uh, I follow quite a few people on social media that are public figures where they have been uh, tried to be canceled. People have tried to cancel them for saying something contrary to what the popular narrative is. Have you had any experience with cancel culture? Well, we didn't call it uh, then. <laughs> this is probably five or six years ago. Uh, I helped some guys uh, make a, a DVD on um, uh, apocalyptic climate change. And um, I got in trouble with the university and I got in trouble with all, you know, all kinds of people in the media. And they wrote, also, they wrote you know, really quite uh, scurrilous things that I, that I sort of wished were true, like that I was a stooge for big oil. I mean, I wish I had been a stooge for big oil because, you know, they would have paid me big bucks, mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't. I was just uh, helping these guys, um, most of whom were retired uh, geophysicists and, and um, guys who had worked in the, in the oil business. And uh, they knew that a lot of what was being said because they could, they could read and understand this, uh, the climate change literature was, was nonsense. Mm -hmm. and, and there were a lot of climate scientists that knew it was nonsense too. Like they, and again, this was what, probably 10 years ago now. Um, and so we, among other things, we interviewed these people uh, and put out this DVD. And um, I hadn't realized at the time uh, that I had violated some internal uh, procedural rules uh, in the university, um, but they were, they were pretty minor. Uh, but the, the critics of, uh, and th this case was the outfit was called Friends of Science, but they're, they're critics. Uh, and anybody who uh, questioned the, the 
major narrative on, on uh, climate change were uh, all kinds of lies were told. Uh, and and uh, these sort of minor thing, I didn't even know that I'd violated some of these rules. Uh, apparently, if, if, if there's a project that is over so many thousands of dollars, I can't remember, uh, you're supposed to put it out to a, to a um, uh, uh, competitive uh, pricing. Well, I mean, I write books. I thought this was like writing a book. I don't put it out to competitive pricing when I, you know, send something off to a, you know, university press. Uh, so I just, it just never occurred to me. Anyway, there are things like that, um, that uh, was, were introduced in this alternate critical narrative of, of what a uh, terrible person I was, um, that I found kind of amusing, quite frankly. And, you know, I'd be interviewed by, by some of these people and I, I would, tell them that, I mean, I would sometimes use uh, words of one syllable and four letters that they could understand uh, and basically tell them they didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. And then you say, well, you, are you a climate denier? And I said, well, I, I'm not really a climate denier. Climate is real. Yeah. I mean, wh what does it mean to be a climate denier that you know you don't you don't think there's such a thing as climate or you don't think it changes well of course it changes yeah like duh yeah <laughs> so yeah the, i mean that's my only experience uh, at least so far um i know that you know some of some of my uh some of my colleagues think that a lot of the stuff that i i do is is uh, silly but then, you know that's fine i don't care well you know i appreciate the fact that you do have a different narrative than a lot of teachers at the universities because the universities have kind of become a breeding ground for um, one-way thinking, which yeah. is, you know, really sad to see. As a mature student, I can I can see when it's happening to the best of my ability, but I look at these 18, 19 year olds coming in and I mean, they just, they just believe whatever they're told. Um, and I was looking on rate my rate my professor at one point. I gave you a really good review, and someone <laughs> someone said his his uh, what he talks about is dangerous. And I was like, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always dangerous if you try and think for yourself. <laughs> always dangerous, you know. It's it, but it's so important to be a critical thinker. So what are some of this January for 2021, I'm really focusing on building healthier mindsets and, you know, the things that we're told from mainstream media, I don't believe contribute to healthier mindsets. I mean, you just look at the response to COVID. I've worked in the fitness industry for 10 years. You know, there, there wasn't anything about like get outside and exercise, make sure you're getting, you know, enough vitamin D. Um, all these things contribute to a healthy immune system. None of them were mentioned, uh, which was, you know, shocking. I said something about that and I, I was crucified on social media for saying people need to exercise. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. I'm, you know, grandma killer for saying that. Um, but what are some practices you think more people need to adopt in 2021 and moving forward? Well, it, it, just to in terms of the media, uh, there are lots of alternate media sources out there now. Um, they're not all uh, 
on one side of the political spectrum. They're all over the place. Uh, so you can, and you can find them if you have access to the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, they haven't been silenced by uh, Facebook and, and Twitter, at least not yet. Um, and a lot of them uh, probably never will be because they, they, they simply go from, um, um, they have enough of a presence that they're, they're uh, I was thinking, think like you probably know Ezra Levant's uh, Rebel Media. Uh, he's not going to be taken down. Or there's uh, True North, and, and these are just Canadian ones. Uh, or there's the, uh, the Western Standard is a kind of uh, online uh, magazine. Um, there, and there's all kinds of, those are all pretty much seen as being quote on the right, but there, there are uh, all kinds of ones on the left as well. Uh, Taiyi out in Vancouver. Uh, so, you know, you can look at these sources uh, and you can find um, uh, alternate, uh, <laughs> alternate facts. Uh, you, can, you can find alternate narratives to what you find in, if you just look at the Calgary Herald. Uh, or the worse, the Globe and Mail, CNN, uh, or oh heavens, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, or CBC, uh, yeah. I mean, they're they're pretty hopeless. Um, but you know, the, that, that's I would say that's one way of maintaining your mental health is to is to look at other uh, alternate sources, non mainstream media, mm-hmm. um, and as you know, as for physical health, uh, I mean, one of the things that really ticked me off is is they uh, shut down the gym. Oh yeah, you know, uh, and I'm a kind of habitual person. I have, I have not been able to do exercise, you know, outside without this routine that I was in, and had been in for you know 50 years. Uh, it's not that easy to uh, create your own gym in the basement. No. Uh, so, I mean, that's I think exercise is very important. Uh, and, you know, vitamin D and all these things, yeah. zinc, Yeah. you know, they're all, they're all kinds of stuff um, that help you um, cope both physically and uh, mentally with what is, you know, clearly a major social disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, it's not that serious. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, it, it can be a real pain in the, but when you, you know, when you have to deal with, with, stupid policies that are imposed upon us by uh, governments. Um, but it's not because there's a genuine crisis. It's because the governments uh, are scared. And, you know, they, they often do very foolish things uh, when they're scared. But th- they're still foolish. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I was talking the other day with actually with, with Ezra. And he said, yeah, but they can arrest you. And I said, yeah, they can um, and, uh, and that's, that's a major inconvenience, you know, but it's not the end of the world, uh, cause there are, there are other people out there who will defend you, mm-hmm. uh, on constitutional grounds. You know, they haven't been able to, uh, repeal the, uh, the charter, not yet. Uh, you know, I don't think they will. I think that, that eventually it'll be like acid rain. Yeah. It'll, it'll just go away. Yeah. And, and these, uh, politicians and their expert advisors uh, will completely, uh, another Orwellian term, it will go down the hole of oblivion yeah. if there ever was a COVID problem. Yeah, or you'll have to get your annual COVID vaccine and, and the pharmaceutical industry will be even richer than it is. Yeah, 
Exactly. It'd be perfect for them. So that's, you know, that's the, some practices. And, you know, I think what I hear you saying is it's not that this disease hasn't affected people. It hasn't taken people's lives. Um, but if you do look like even the CDC reports uh, what two point something comorbidities with 95, 97, I can't remember the exact percentage of cases where people have died. And so I heard it said really eloquently is that the lifestyle practices loaded the gun, but COVID pulled the trigger. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. There, were, there were a lot of, uh, and, and remember as well that um, our life expectancy has increased enormously. Mm -hmm. uh, and the older you get, um, you know, sometimes you can maintain your health, but for most people who get old, um, they get sick or their, you know, their uh, homeostasis declines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, they will be, uh, if the, if the average life expectancy, if after you get, you know, past age 20 or something, uh, in my parents' generation was uh, 70 and it's 80 now. Yeah. The people who are living between 70 and 80, many of them would have died of, of quote, natural causes uh, a generation ago. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that all of these demographic factors and the what is it that keeps uh, old people alive who a generation ago would have died uh, among other things is, uh, you know, pharmaceutical uh, bullets, uh, rather than say having healthy immune systems. Yeah. 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 And you know, there's lots of lifestyle practices we can adopt to maintain a healthy immune system, you know, far from sitting hunkered down inside and not seeing anyone or, you know, interacting with other virus yeah. bacteria in our environment, which is extremely important. So my last question for you is, what mindsets do you think need to be challenged in 2021? Anything said by a politician. <laughs> anything. <laughs> and second, anything said by their quote unquote scientific advisors. Uh, if you do that, uh, you'll, you'll keep your mental health. <laughs> uh, it, it's not that they're necessarily lying. You know, they're, it, because uh, as Machiavelli says, you have to know the truth in order to lie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that they don't know. And so they say things that makes it seem like they know. And they want to reassure you. And why do they do that? Uh, because of what I said earlier about how modern human beings in particular uh, want certainty, uh, even if it's certain untruth, rather than as... I quoted in the class, uh, uncertain truth. Yeah. Certain untruth will always win out over uncertain truth. Yeah. And that's a modern problem. Mm. Mm. You know, that, uh, that, that did not, uh, was not a problem for our medieval forebears or the Greeks or people who live isolated in the jungles of Brazil now. Uh, it is our problem, however. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was such a pleasure to have you. Where can people find um, books, uh, information about you? Where can they get a hold of you? 
Um, well, probably most of the stuff is is available that I've written is on Amazon, but most of it is a, a I would say of minor interest to normal people. Um, the the COVID book uh, you can get on Amazon, uh, and it's I think it's about ten bucks. It's not very expensive. Yeah. Um, and what was that called again? Uh, COVID nineteen: the politics of a pandemic moral panic. Awesome. And are you on any social media platforms? No. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> None. <laughs> you know, that, that assignment, I did talk about this in one of my podcasts where I, uh, I took a full week and then it just ended up being extended and I just stayed off because I just, I feel so much better um, not being on social media. However, I post podcasts, so I have to be on social media to a certain extent, but yeah. That's yeah. Awesome. The most, a couple of years ago, the most really moving um, uh, response I had to that uh, uh, project about going off social media was uh, from an Aboriginal kid from the blood reserve. And uh, he said that he had seen enough um, addiction in his family to know what it was. Mm. Uh, so he said, no more for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's it for today, everyone. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye now. Thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion and gained better insight into how you can be the healthiest version of yourself that you can be. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel on iTunes and please leave me a review so we can get this message of better health out there. Have a great day and remember, you are powerful over your health.